All right, we're going to start in Psalm 34, verses 1 to 7. Looks like somebody put a title for the message up there. God's grace supersedes our stupid. Uh, that was me. I chose that message. I don't know if I was just looking in the mirror and talking to myself. I really actually would say you're going to see as we dig into this that there's some things that, that God we need to understand about God, especially as we understand the way we live. So let's begin with Psalm 34, 1 through 7, and then we're going to kind of take some things apart and look closer at that. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. You know, David invites the congregation to join him in praising God. We see that so clearly in verse 3. You know, let us exalt his name together, which is what we were doing. But we can, we can read into this, and as we take hold of this, you know, we can, we can read into it the energy, the, the exuberance, this expression of joy that we get from the words of this psalm. And, you know, life must have been pretty good for David at this time, you think about it. Do you find there a parallel in your proclamation, in your praise sometimes? That when life is going really good, it's relatively easy to praise the Lord. It's actually quite um, enjoyable in an experiential sense to see certain things unfold or certain victories. Like, oh, and to have a little maybe relational or financial or, you know, sort of relief. And you're like, oh. And it's so easy just to praise God and be so excited. Maybe that's what was, Well, actually, we can look a little closer at the text and we'll see something else. Let's actually start Psalm 34, kind of before verse 1, if you would. It's one of the psalms that gives us an interesting and very essential, I believe, insight into what's happening. Notice it as you look at your text. A psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. What? This was a psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech speaks of a, it's a king of actually the Philistines, who drove him away and David departed. God desires that we understand his word. That's kind of a given, agreed? I mean, he gave us the human capacity as creatures, give us the capacity to comprehend, to communicate, you know, to collect data, so to speak, and to assimilate and to sort it out and, and understand. Um, so it's understandable. We could agree. He he. He has given us his, his word so we would understand it. But how do we do that? See, we're told in Scripture, and he, this is kind of the pictures he paints for us, or the image he gives us, that, you know, he enlightens us to his word. He illuminates it for us. And, and you know, those two words indicate, you know, a sense of, like, there's a little bit of darkness, per se, and then something brings this light, brings it to light, helps us to understand. 
Well, how does God illuminate or enlighten the word to us? Well, one way that he does this is he presents his word through people. People and situations we can relate to. It's not required that we grasp the principles by knowing the person, but in his patience and his loving kindness, he says, listen, I'm going to share with you, I'll show you what some of my people go through, and that'll make it easier for you to correlate or connect or synchronize that with your own situation and in any measure, if you would, your own expression. So I want to look, because we have an opportunity here, we're told more about this little prelude we just read. I want to look into it and just see what was happening in David's life when he declared this psalm. It's not David's psalm. It's the Lord's song. God himself brought his word into the heart of David, bringing it forth, if you would, to the hand of David, but it's still the word of God. He's just an instrument. And so we have to understand, why did he do that? Well, I think it's so we can have a connection, if you would, into our life realities. Let's turn together, if you would. Let's go over to 1 Samuel chapter 21. So you're going to go left in your Bible. You go past Ezra and Chronicles and, you know, First and Second Kings and Second Samuel. And you're going to settle in at, at 1 Samuel. And I'm going to take a few minutes right now. And I want to uh, give you some background. It's really important because we have it here uniquely in this portion of Scripture in Psalm 34. So let's look back and see the historical record and help us to maybe kind of have a correlate, a connection with David. David has been anointed king by the prophet Samuel. We find that earlier in 1 Samuel 16, 17, I believe. 16. He's been anointed king, but he's not yet placed as king. See, there's a problem right now. There's already a king. The king's name is Saul. The bigger problem is that King Saul, who was appointed by God, anointed by God, he was put there to be God's representative to the people, a king to lead the people, because the people really insisted that's what they wanted, despite God's warning. Well, Saul started out fine, seeking the Lord and receiving from God. But then Saul became something in his own eyes. He started looking at himself and started thinking of himself. And and he literally took his eyes off of God and got stuck on himself. And so here's Saul as king. And God then, through Samuel, anoints another king who's not of the family of Saul. This is a man named David, a boy named David, some would say. So David is king in waiting. Well, Saul has a son. King Saul has a son, which we know that would be called, I guess you could say prince. Next in line, a man by the name of Jonathan. So Saul sees a scenario. Saul to Jonathan or Saul to David. I want Jonathan. Therefore, I kill David. That's the process. I'm going to eliminate the competition, if you would. And so the unique thing about all of this is that David and Saul's son, Jonathan, are knit together like brothers. They're really tight. They have a very beautiful relationship, a very amazing loyalty to God, and an encouragement to one another. Well, in 1 Samuel 20, 
David convinces Jonathan, who is the son of King Saul, to scheme with David in proving Saul's evil intentions toward David. David said, man, your dad's going to take me out. Jonathan goes, he's a little wacko, but I don't know he's going to go that far. No, dude, he will. And so David hatched a plan, a, a scheme, if you would, so that he would be gone during a feast when he should be with the, in the dinner with the king. And he's going to be gone. And then Jonathan's to tell his dad, hey, you know, no, no, David's not whack. He's not going against you. He's just at this other family get-together. So Jonathan follows along with, okay, yeah, hey, dad, you know, he's over there. And, and Saul becomes so enraged that he tries to kill Jonathan his own son. Now, why do I say all that? Because Jonathan was nearly killed in David's scheme. Now David separated from his best friend, Jonathan. It was really a sad scenario because the scripture, we, we, it, it indicates chronologically that David and Jonathan will no longer be connected. They're still knit together, but because of this whole scenario and everything that unfolded, they'd be separated, and Jonathan will die in battle with his brother and with his father, Saul. And so David has now lost his best friend in chapter 20. He's no longer connected with him, separated from his best friend. He leaves then, and he goes on a bit of a journey. He goes to a place called Nob, which is still in the Israelite, Israel's territory, and when he gets there, he, he schemes. He deceives Ahimelech, the priest. He gets there, and he basically tells Ahimelech, the priest, hey, we're on the king's business, and it was so urgent. He sent us out so quick. We got no grits. We didn't pack a lunch. We got no food. You got any food? And so he you know, kind of really misleads and deceives Ahimelech who then gives him some food, and then David goes, oh, and another thing, we had to bolt so fast, I, I, I don't have my Glock. I mean, I don't have my sword. I, I got nothing. And so, do you have anything? And, and Ahimelech says, well, we just got that one who you took from Goliath, the giant from Gath, you, you, when you slayed him, and David goes, there's no sword comparable to that sword. So he takes this magnificent sword that was stashed away there in Nob. He puts that on, well, he, I don't know how he carried that beast of a sword anyway, but he's pretty stoked. He's got him. And now he leaves there. But you see, it was, it was, he wasn't forthright. He wasn't straightforward. He, 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 he was really deceptive and, and kind of scheming. And he's explaining to Ahimelech why he's ill-prepared in, in such a hurry. I mention those two events because David, we see from Scripture, has a pattern of trusting in schemes, in his own ideas, in his plans. And we see it unfold once again in verse 10 of 1 Samuel 21. Let's read it, take a look at it together. In chapter 10, David has left Nob. He's got the sword. David arose and, I'm sorry, chapter 21, verse 10. David arose and fled that day before Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of him to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands? Now David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them. 
pretended madness in their hands, scratched on the doors of the gate, and let his saliva fall down on his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Look, you see the man's insane. Why have you brought him to me? Have I need of madmen that you have brought this fellow to play the madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Chapter 22, verse 1. David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. So he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. So let's kind of break this down a little bit. David, fleeing from Saul, determined he would be better off with the known enemies of God. Do you remember the one I referenced, the beast of a man, guy by the name of Goliath? He killed him. David did some years previously. And now he goes back to that region, that area, Gath. And he's actually carrying this very weapon that Goliath carried. And in his mind, he's decided, I'd be better off over there. I'd be better off in that scenario, in this situation. David had sought relief and shelter and peace from bad company. How's that work out for him? Well, we're going to see how it works out. But maybe by application, I can say this. How's it work out for you? When, when the things are unfolding that are they're awful, and they're awkward, or they're unexplainable, or they're unpredictable, or you did not anticipate your life being in that fashion, do we find sometimes ourselves pulling back from the people of God? Pulling back, perhaps, even from the living God? And saying, you know, I just got to sort this out. Or perhaps we actually seek relief and shelter and peace in bad company. And it's not, I'm not looking at it as bad people. I just look at it as a bad decision. I'm not going to find the comfort going back to the people I used to run with. They, they don't have the same values. They don't have the same relationship with God. They're like, it's different. And so I can't go back and think, well, it'll be better. I used to do, we used to hang out. We used to do these things. You see what I'm saying? It's not that we isolate, look back, and judge. But if we go somewhere and shelter with people or come up with people and say, hey, I just want to chill for a while. In bad company, it just isn't going to work out good. It just never does. David, what does he do? When he has his, uh, what have I done moment? You ever had one of those? What was I thinking moment? He schemed. See, when he has that moment, we don't know the full details, but we can look at what the end result. He he schemed, because here's what happens. If you could make a note of this. The pattern he practiced previously is what he does when fear arises. The pattern he had practiced, we've seen some examples of it. The pattern he had practiced previously is what he does when fear arises. Can you relate to that? Do you have certain patterns, thought patterns, practices that you don't want to talk about them? You're really not even sure how to deal with them per se. But when we find ourselves scheming or some way come up with another plan, and then we try to follow God, when things get tight and things get tough, what do we do? We default. 
to our known practice. I like the simplicity of technology in one sense. When you set a certain printer to print, when you type up something and decide to print, it will go, you will print at that printer. I had some stuff from children's ministry, print on my printer here, this just this per service. I'm like, well, that's not going to do them any good. <laughs> but the, what, you know what happened? A default printer was set at a different place. And so it went to that printer. Do you see the parallel? The things we practice are default. That's what's going to happen when we don't consciously change them. And we don't consciously change something when fear arises so fast. Then we find ourselves just settling in and maybe the wrong company or perhaps even the wrong place with a kind of a scheme. Notice what David does. He, he acts crazy. David's a king to be. David is a strong leader. He isn't really in a band of merry men, if you've read, if you noticed. You know, those who were discontent, I think the words were like uh, those 3D, distressed, in debt, and discontented. It's like he's hanging around with a bunch of whiners in some sense that are strong people. And now he's, he's like, that's where he ended up after this. But anyway, you see what he's saying? He's like, he's a leader, he's got strength, he's got to make decisions, he's been a powerful warrior. He took down Goliath, he's led campaigns, he's been an amazing man of God in a, in a military sense. And now he's spitting and slobbering and scratching on the wall like a lunatic intentionally. That's humiliating. Let's just face it. It's humiliating. And he chose to do it. But guess what? It seemed to have worked. Agreed? It seemed to have worked. And I would say this in his defense. It's better to humble yourself and live than to stiffen your neck and make matters worse. See, he could have just tried to fight his way out. We don't know what would have happened. But we know he humbled himself, even in a humiliating way. But David, we're going to see, he learned from this humiliating thing. He was willing and able to learn. And here's what I want to say that ties together with the title. The lesson is that God's blessing and favor supersede our stupid. We have some scheming and deceiving in certain plans or ways that we work things out. And God doesn't say, you know what? Just fine. Slobber and spit and see how it works out. He, he super, it supersedes. He didn't go, you know what, David? If you're going to act like that, I ain't going to be around you. Instead, it, it supersedes. It went before his blessing. It, God still helped David. The key, I think we can see from this portion is also that humility is the fast track to learning. Humility is the fast track to learning. It's really simple, honestly. In order to learn, you most often need to realize you don't know everything. So this expression from David, I believe there's an element of humility, an element of, I'm getting out of here, and not concerned about his reputation or even the measure of risk. He's more concerned, like, I got to deal with this. Stubbornness, pride, defiance always makes matters worse. When we got a little scheme about a relationship, when we got a little plan about how we would give or not give or finances, we got all these things, when we keep entertaining them, it just makes matters worse. But in the moment, it seems like a solution. Here's a good example. You remember a man by the name of Samson? 
I'm not going to go into the details because of our time constraints. But Samson was a man who God had appointed. He gave him power. He gave him ability. He did amazing things to this man against Philistines. And here's this guy that God does this amazing work through. But Samson played when he should have been humble and learning. Samson was prideful and he used God's given, God-given gifts for his own benefit rather than for the glory of God. You know, Samson, we know of him. He was amazing. He was mightily used. But he only entertained. I mean, he was messing around with Delilah. He's just, he just did all kinds of squirrely things. Even to the point where he just kind of shrugged off. God's protecting him. And he, you know, through, because remember, he wasn't supposed to get a haircut, basically. But he's just like, Whatever. You know, kind of took it really flippantly. He brought hardship, pain, and blindness into his own life because he was always scheming. I want to suggest to you, David, David, he humbled himself. We notice in verse 1 of chapter 22 that David departed from there. He departed from there. He left this area, this gath, And he went somewhere else. It was geographical departure and a philosophical departure. Geographically, he went from Gath, out of the enemy territory, into the homeland, if you would, to Adullam. He went from scheming to trusting. He chose to make that transition. I'll say it again. Better to humble yourself and live than to stiffen your neck and make matters worse. I can can say that one from personal experience. I wish it was a deeper conviction because I still do dumb things. But in reality, I'm learning more and more. It's better to just, when you know you're on the wrong road, go, stop the car, go, you know what? I know we're going the wrong way. I don't care. I've never been here before. Well, wonderful. It's better to just, okay, fine. Let's get back on route. Let's get where we need to go. Let's pay attention. Humble yourself. David did a humiliating thing, yet he learned from it. Humility is the fast track to learning. I know I'm repeating myself. There's a purpose. The lesson is God's blessing and favor supersede our stupid. I know my wife is cringing because I've said stupid several times, and stupid is not a nice word. Some of you are going, I don't even want my kids saying stupid. It's not a nice word. It's not. But Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1 Whoever loves instruction loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. The point being unwilling to learn, knowing, okay, I learned from this, but I did nothing different. That's kind of dumb, kind of stupid to keep repeating this. And so it's better to learn from correction. It's better to learn from experiences, better to look at what somebody else went through and learn from them if possible. Now, Here's something I know you had to be considering at least some point in your spiritual journey and your study of the Bible. The Bible shows us that people in the Bible, characters, like we're thinking even here we see David and I could list many, many others. They scheme and they scam and at times they're flat out dishonest. Did you notice that in your Bible? Wait a minute, I thought these people were the elite. They were the spiritual top dogs. They were the ones that made the cut. They are the ones that shed the example. How could they be doing dumb things like this? 
Does it mean it's okay to do this, be this way in certain situations? Situational ethics, honesty on convenience. It must be okay because look what the Bible shows. No, see, just because you read about it doesn't mean God approves of it. Just because someone else did something dumb and got away with it doesn't mean you should try to duplicate some form of their dumb idea. You know that, right? I mean, you probably watch that with your friends. It's like, ooh, that, ooh, that, that, that should have hurt. You don't go, I'm, I know, I'm, well, okay, I shouldn't say that. Guys don't learn this way. So here's my theory. Just stick with me. You have four guys together. We have one guy, you have three-fourths of a brain. You have two guys, you're down to half. You have a third guy there, you're down to a quarter. When someone says, hey, get a picture of this. Hey, watch this. I bet I can do this. Is it not true? One person does it, you duplicate dumb, and then you call 911. It's like, well, wait a minute. I'm getting old and still able to walk, so I'm able to, wait a minute, I don't think I want to participate in that anymore. I want to learn from these various things. You know, we're reading about what happened here in what we call the, the Old Testament, this first section of Scripture. And we read about how God reveals the, the condition of humanity, the solution for humanity. It reveals the character of God, the patience of God. It's revealed through people in the Old Testament. Their wanderings, they're going from, from captivity across the Red Sea by God's miracles. They're, they're being brought from a family into a big nation. And God's faithfulness. And we're told in 1 Corinthians of the New Testament, chapter 10, that we're to learn from their experiences that those things that are recorded, those things we're, we're told about here that we've read about, are for our admonition. That we're to be instructed by them so that we don't do the same thing, basically. That we could learn from them. So let me just say, in summary for this portion, what we're reading about here, it's not an issue of trickery. It's not just the deception and, 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 and you know, the, the, the scheming that David's doing. See, that's not an issue of trickery. It's an issue of trust. If you're trusting God, you don't rely on trickery. See, so that's a, it's a, hopefully you can receive this as a very personal thing, a very private thing for each one of us. We all have certain things that we're, we've come up with a plan or we're, we, we have a way to do it that's different or for some reason we have an exemption. And it's a type of trickery, whether it's engaging with people, managing resources, doing whatever it is. It's not an issue of a new way to do it. It's an issue of how do I trust God in it? How do I learn to trust God? And I believe that we can, we can choose to learn from David. David had a habit of scheming and deceiving and trickery, and it, and it never worked out good for him. But there's another habit of David that's very important to note. We see it from here, what we're reading about here in, in 1 Samuel, which we're told in Psalm 34 to look back at 1 Samuel. So we look back at 1 Samuel, and we consider what, half, what the content of Psalm 34 is. tells us he learned from what he went through. In other words, he, he realized that this is not the way to do it. I want to learn to trust God. David humbled himself before God. In adversity, David chose to trust God. In adversity, through humility, David was strengthened by God. And consider this. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 6, 
Now David was greatly distressed. It's sometime after what we've read previously. For the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his son and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. So let me give you a little insight into that. They made a mistake, so to speak, or they were outwitted, if you would, militarily. And the enemy came in and took away the family that they'd left behind while they're on this campaign. The enemy scooped around and stole their family and their loved ones. And so how do people react to David's leadership? Well, let's just kill him. David, it says, you know, we're looking at that. He, they were, the people were deeply distressed. David was greatly distressed because the people were saying, hey, we're done with you. It is an interesting element of people, right? You know, there's that part where he, he, he really, he was just leading them. And now he got an adversity and now people are coming at him. And he could have said, don't get on my, don't get in my face. You're the fools that were following me. Don't get on my grill. Don't call me out. You know, I wouldn't either. You should have been paying attention too. He didn't, he didn't get all puffed up and schemy. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Isn't that fascinating? That in the midst of one of the most difficult times of his life, his best friend is gone. He's been betrayed by many people. He's hanging around with the discontent and the distressed and the distraught. And in chapter 30, we're also told that the wicked and, and what do they call them? I read it earlier. The wicked and worthless men that were in this camp. You're not getting great counsel from that group, okay? So here he's really like kind of on an island, so to speak. And many of you know what I'm talking about. You've been there through a tough relationship or a hard situation or a scenario you're in currently. David, I want to learn from his pattern. He strengthened himself in the Lord his God. God, I'm going to you. You're all I've got. You're all that I need and you're all that I've got. Let's now revisit what we read earlier. Let's revisit Psalm 34. And let's read through it briefly with this background and these considerations and what scripture has shown us concerning when David was before Ahimelech. Abimelech is actually a, a, a title, if you'd be like President George Washington would be President George, and you, you may have caught that when we're going through it. It was two different names, right? Did you catch it? Because if you didn't, I just confused you. <laughs> if you did, you can go back and check it out. So anyway, let's go back, and here we see in Psalm 34, verse 1, after this scenario we're told about, probably in the cave of Adullam, in a place where he probably just sought solitude and was really like, hey, Lord, what's going on? And he, we see, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually in my mouth. I love this because what you can see and it's so evident, I will bless the Lord at all times. Who's he gonna bless? The Lord, his God. At all times. See, what's so important for us to make this connection is God is the same no matter what your situation is. God is the same no matter how our scenario is. He's still the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we have a struggle, a legitimate reality, a difficulty when we go through hardship and trial and loss and lack. And we're going through these things and we don't feel, we don't have the logic to align ourselves with God. We will not have the feeling. We will not have the logic. But we will choose the heart. Because see, 
the relationship I have and you have, that we individually have with God, is not based on our situation and our scenario. It's based on his promises. It's based on his provision. It's based on who he is. So when my situation gets sticky and ucky and awkward and weird, it stays sticky and ucky and awkward and weird. But my God is the same. I will bless the Lord. He, he literally is saying, you know, I will give my attention to God. I will literally be happy. I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be continually on my lips or in my mouth. Catch verse two. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. And the observation and those in the congregation and those in their lives around David, the humble shall hear of it and be glad. Verse two is really interesting to me. I found it very comforting because my soul shall make its boast in the Lord. My feelings will not my mind will not. You may tell yourself, I'm just going to praise the Lord. I'm just going to stay close to the Lord. You, your mind will then argue with you. Why should you? Why should you stay close to God? You're going through this because God didn't take care of you. Your mind will drive you crazy. But your soul, the seat of your emotion, the center point of your existence, the, who you are in this body, the very core of your being where you, you engage with God... My soul, the very depth of who I am, shall make its boast in the Lord. Sometimes my mind agrees. Sometimes I feel like boasting in the Lord. Other times, I don't. But it doesn't change the relationship. And that's the hardest thing I believe we deal with in this life. As we go through illnesses, we go through loss, we go through situations and scenarios that are unexplainable and painful and deep, deep suffering. And our mind says, you shouldn't have to go through this. But our soul says, I will boast in the Lord. You know, it's very interesting because I call it this, but it's such an oxymoron, a contradiction. I call it forced faith. Because you can't have faith if it's forced. But my mind is not that locked down. My mind is real simple. I've got no place else to go. So the only option I have is this one. And I don't see that as some pressure. Think about what the disciples said. Peter said it so beautifully. The disciples were presented with a difficult situation and tough teaching in John chapter 6. And many of them turned back and walked with Jesus no more. And Jesus turned his attention to the ones that were still there and said, but what about you? What are you guys going to do? And Peter, Peter said it this way. He didn't have the answers. But he had the relationship. And Peter said this. Where am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. He's like, I, I, I'm, I'm, you're the only one. And that's why I jokingly call it forced faith. I have, I'm not going anywhere else. I've got no options, nor interest. I'm going to just say, Lord, I'm, I'm going to put my boast in you. My trust is in you. The humble shall hear of it and be glad, speaking of others. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us lift his name up. Let's exalt his name together. David, I believe, we see, was this interesting contradiction. The flesh, the nature, the old person wanting to scheme and come up with ideas and ways to do it his way. And then the, the new creation, this new person, this relationship you had with God is, is saying, you know, Lord, I want you to be first. Let me lift you up. Do you relate to that? Is there not that in your life at times? Let's not let the scenario and the situation determine our spiritual life. Let's let the living God who meets us in all of our needs, who walks us and carries us through life's 
casualties and difficulties, let us build a relationship with him based on who he is, not how things are. And, and I, I can say it, it sounds so almost poetic and so truthful, it's really hard to do. It's really hard to do. Because it involves constant, open, willing engagement with God. And, and, and humility, which is what we see with David. He had the humility. You know, David was described very uniquely, more than any other person in the Bible. Nobody has been given this description. That he was a man after God's own heart. Have you ever thought about that passage? What does it look like to be a man after God's own heart? And I think this is what it looks like. is to humble yourself and admit, God, I need you more than I ever realized. To be able to go through situations and go through scenarios and continue to draw closer to God, to draw your strength from the living God. I sought the Lord, it says in verse four, and he heard me and he delivered me from all of my fears. That's a statement he could say a little bit past tense based on what we've seen, but it's a continuous, it's, it's a, a continuing present statement. You have delivered me from all my fears. Do you realize that every single one of us have fears that have manifested and fears that are, are just within us? And they're not even in our conscious mind. And it takes a scenario. Do you know this is David who they said killed thousands, tens of thousands? In that moment, in that moment, David realized, I should not be here. Fear erupted. It, it just like all of a sudden he comes up with this silly scheme because of fear. And now after going through that, we see the Lord, I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all of my fears. Think of it this way. Fear is like a, like a flame. It's like a fire. And it's just burning. It's coals. It's just present. And when the fan or when the wind comes or the fuel shows up and the situations are just right, it flares up. And it is the, the enemy of faith. But ironically, faith, true faith, this relational faith we're talking about, douses that flame of fear. Not only does it douse it, it creates a, a different energy, a, a different reality, a different um, life, the life of faith, where fear is not taking us off course. Most of our silly decisions are fear-based. Most of our cowering, most of our pulling back, deep down, before we even get it up here, there's a fear. There's something there. And what we see here is David is he's going through this. I saw the Lord and he delivered me from all of my fears. Goes on in verse five, it goes into a plural. They looked to him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. Those who look to God, those who seek the Lord. It's not just the countenance visible to the, the, the eyes. It's the countenance of the soul, so to speak, where there's a joy, there's something there regardless of the scenario, the situations. Verse 6, this poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Who? Which poor man? Is he standing there before the people and pointed out this guy over here? You know who it is. You know who it is. It's David who sees himself as this poor man. I've got nothing. Boy, people look at me, and people think I'm this, and people say he's that. And there was those that would gather with him in a cave and, and really look to his leadership. And he's like, yeah, I'm nothing. 
I have nothing. I have nothing to breathe the people. He cried out and the Lord heard him and delivered him. The Lord saved him out of all of his troubles. So powerful if we apply it personally. The Lord knows your situation. The Lord knows my scenario. He knows these things. And if we can see ourselves as a poor man, poor woman, poor person, I got nothing, but I have him. And the one thing that I have is the only thing I need to learn to cry out to him, to learn to declare to him, God, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to escape the pain. I don't know how to deal with the issue. I don't know how to change the scenario. I, I got nothing. I'm, poor. I, I'm destitute. I've got no deception. I've got no scheme. I got no scam. I've got nothing. And I cry out to you. That's, that's faith. That's genuine faith. That's real world faith. That's the faith that builds us up. Faith that is true before God. David goes on to say, The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers them. He understood it. He realized it. David is learning to trust God. Now, he's not just barely been anointed. See, if he got anointed by Samuel the prophet with some special oil, you're pretty much going to have an easy life, right? No, not at all. He was prepared for a life that would prepare him for a life of service. The process of pain and suffering, God accomplished eternal purposes through. It's not that God brings pain on to train you, but you can be trained through the sufferings of this life. We can realize, this is not my home. I don't want a better retirement I don't need a second home. I don't, I'm done with that. I don't mind those things, but they're not going to own me when I can own them. I'm not going to make this my final place. I'm not going to put my hope here. I'm not going to settle in and say, all right, it'll get better. Nope. You ready for a little gloom and doom? It's going to get worse. It ain't going to get better. It's going to get worse. Even if you were doing okay financially, your carcass is not yet dead yet, but it's still a carcass in waiting. Do you understand what I'm talking about? You're not getting healthier, okay? Didn't mean to depress you. Trust the Lord. Do <laughs> you see what I'm saying? This is not home. And I want to live in this world. I want to be a healthy person, so to speak. I want to live with some light, some sense of, of, of spiritual vitality. I want to be able to be a witness like you want to be a witness. But I'm leaving, I'm not staying. And therefore, I want to realize, man, Lord, I'm a, I want to trust in you. you. You encamp all around us. You deliver us. There's nothing you're going through. I've went through that God says, you know what? You're on your own with that. I won't go there. I won't deal with that. Religion says that. Religion says a lot of things. Religion speaks with words that, that really should be just not even spoken. I hear religious people, and you have heard it too, maybe through different scenarios, you know, settings, but praise is offered. But it's not praise. It's religious music with a spiritual thought. Praise should be passionate and personal before it's broadcast publicly. Public praise that is not deeply personal is void of conviction and reeks of religion. Praise is deeply personal. Let it be personal, real, transformative. And when your words are spoken, they encourage and awaken others. See, David is speaking and others are seeing and they're responding. 
one who speaks frequently and flippantly with Christian jargon, broadcasting words of praise from a mouth of hypocrisy does much harm. May your words and the deeds be the reflection of a deep, genuine, humble surrender to God. This type of praise is always personal before it's public. So although we're reading David's public declaration, it's from a personal conviction, a personal relationship. And so I'm wrapping up. Let me give you a summary that I think is helpful. Um, first thing I would say, you want to ask yourself in regards to scheming and sorting out, am I trusting God, am I not? Just ask this question. Is this really a good idea? Is this really a good idea? I mean, it, it always sounds wonderful until someone else hears it. I can, make, I can come up with some great ideas in my head. It's when they, they go out to other counselors or advisors to someone I trust, and they're like, are you kidding me? Yeah, it does sound kind of weird. Let me rephrase it. You don't need to. Your point was clear. <laughs> and you're like, oh, maybe you have that friend in your life. I hope you do. You're like, oh, that's a good point. Is it really a good idea? Because here's the thing. Am I trusting God with this? Am I really trusting God with this? And there's areas in our life that are common. I could throw them out there. They're the human experience and pressure points to our faith. There's areas of finance, areas of sexuality, or areas of acceptance, areas of relationship. And we come up with excuses. And we actually don't even realize we're scheming and, oh, I'm going to do it this way. Here's the question. You ask it personally before the Lord. Not even before your spouse. Am I really trusting God on this? And, and be honest. David was just honest. At some point, he just started spitting up and running. You know what I'm saying? He realized, I ain't staying here. This is silly. I got a bad idea. Next part. Receive his correction. Stop the stupid. Should be a bumper sticker. <laughs> Seriously. Receive his correction. Stop the stupid. It really, if you learn something... Let it be a transformative. By transformative, I mean taking you from the old person, forming you into his image and likeness. It's transforming you. The knowledge of the word is not meant to, in, to tickle our intellect with information, but to change our life expression through transformation. And so that should be taking place. It should be something, it should be visible. And I don't mean it in any way disrespectful. I just tell myself, stop the stupid. You know that's not the way to do it, so stop doing it that way. Well, I don't know what to do. I'm familiar with that. Brilliant thought. No, just, okay, Lord, help me. show me how to receive instructions. I'm going to be changed by you. The third point, praise him even in the painful times. Even in the painful times, relationally, financially. I'm just speaking in these topics that are common to all of us. Praise him in the painful times. Because he is God before that situation come about. He is God when that situation changes. He is still the same. Praise him. Genuine, personal, private, intimate, transparent, deep praise. It may not even involve audible words. It may be the cry of your heart in your prayer closet. It may later be expressed in some other ways, but let it be that, that point of just praising him. Even in the painful times, the fourth one, trust him. Moment moment. And that's important because we can look so far ahead and see no light. Or we can look behind us and, 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 and actually douse our hope as well. But in the moment, knowing, okay, right now, in this situation, I'm going to trust you, God, and I don't even know how.
Isn't that the beautiful thing about your walk with God? He tells you to trust him. Great, now I have one more pressure point something I have to perform up to. No, that's not true. See, when you meet someone, you extend a measure of trust to that person. You don't know who they are. You just have a friend who knows them. And so you're introduced. So you, through the initial engagement, you extend a little bit of trust. You may listen to them a little bit, but you're, you know, inadvertently or maybe sometimes consciously, you're just seeing who they are and how they are. And your engagement with that person ends up with trust being extended more or withdrawn, depending on the engagement of the relationship. So we know that among people, right? Some of you, you were introduced to your spouse through some relationship, some friend, and it took a while before you to become spouses, you know what I'm saying? Trust was built. Well, what's the connection? It's that way with God. It's the same with God. These are the issues of life. These are the hard things we deal with to where we learn to trust him and we see his faithfulness. And when we see his faithfulness, then we're willing to trust him just a little bit more. Don't think that this one time, all the time, every time, perfectly, I'm gonna trust God. Be honest. Like, God, I have a hard time trusting you in this. I'm hurting and this is hard and this is painful. I don't know how to do it. And so your next step is, God, could you help me? I don't know your ways. I don't understand why. Could you help me trust you? And you see, as you build a relationship, you grow in trust. And as you grow in trust, you grow in the relationship. And it's done moment by moment, moment by moment. The enemy would like you to look back on that time of excitement and really, that was so beautiful when that happened in my life and God was so faithful. And then he wants you to look ahead at something else or he gets you looking at the bad things. And God says to you, to me, day by day, step by step, walk in the spirit and you will not give in to the lust of the flesh. Walk in the spirit, day by day, moment by moment. It's such a beautiful picture that God says, listen, you're just going to need to go moment by moment with me. None of us do well with moment by moment. It's because we're impatient. I don't want to, I don't want to, I just don't want to. He's like, it's okay, you will. And now I'm learning more and more moment by moment. 